Happy New Year. Welcome to Staying at Home, episode number 15. My name is Simon, and before the intro music starts, I just wanted to say I wish you all the very best for the new year. Let 2021 be better than 2020 and just focus on the things that inspire and motivate us. I just wanted to say, besides the thank you um, to you guys, uh, to keep listening and keep subscribing to this podcast. I've never thought it would have, uh, it would grow to something that big um, that uh, we try to make it more frequently, but uh, unfortunately sometimes with scheduling and uh, making sure sometimes to, you know, even with different time zones and everything, it's not the easiest task, but I promise we will be better with uh, the frequency of the uh, episodes getting published. Also, um, today we had a little bit uh, technical errors. Uh, the internet connection of uh, of my guest wasn't uh, experienced the best internet performance today. So if the audio sounds a little bit glitchy, um, uh, it will get better in the second half of the podcast. And fortunately, the topic is pretty pretty amazing, and I'm really really happy we got to record this. So stay tuned, enjoy the intro music, and we see you very, very soon. Fifteenth episode of the Stain at Home podcast. My name is Simon Groneberg, and today I have the first female guest and a very, very special guest on this show. Before that, it was only uh, a big uh, dude talking format, but we're gonna change this up a little bit. And I could not imagine any other better guest than. Susan Silverman. Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for reaching out. So, Susan, you have been involved in so many things. You've been uh, part of an organization that is called Woman of the Wall. You became a rabbi. You now focus mainly on issues all around adoption. But I think I would like to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to the listeners of this podcast. Sure. So uh, I, I am, as you said, I'm a rabbi and an activist, a spouse and a mother. And uh, I live in Jerusalem, Israel, and work actually largely in the United States. So I am involved in issues in Israel, but my most of my focus and my work is U.S. based. So how did you um, grow up from what I learned? You grew up in the United States and around 2006, you decided to move with your family to Israel. But how was growing up for you in the U.S. and how did you become the person that cares so much about uh, helping and educating others? So I grew up one of very few Jewish families in Manchester, New Hampshire, and the only Democrats that I knew were the other Jewish families. Everybody else was Christian and basically Republican, as far as I remember. And um, so I thought that being Jewish meant that you were liberal. That's like my understanding of Judaism, which uh, I wish was more true, but it's still it's still pretty good statistic. Um, 
And so I grew up very much with a sense of being Jewish, but not really much about uh, Jewish practice and tradition and thought. And uh, when I got to college and I met my now husband, he had, had the same values as I did. He, he grew up, you know, with liberal values and activist uh, orientation in the world. Uh, you know, in sixth grade, his mother brought him to Clamshell Alliance to learn how to um, uh, get, get bitten by police dogs, like learn how to like civil disobedience and peaceful resistance. And so, but he also had a Jewish education. And so I was so taken with him and how he could contextualize the issues that we both cared about in eternal concepts, such as Telem Elohim, that everyone's made in the image of God, or Brit being in a covenant with God for Tikkun Olam, for making the world a better place. So I loved having this kind of... Uh, multi-generational, even eternal set of concepts that I could place myself in and not just have everything be based on sort of like my opinion and the opinions I learned from my parents, right? That there is something deeper and uh, more sustaining around those, uh, around that orientation in the world. Uh, and I went to rabbinical school really with very little Jewish education still. I had done a little bit, but very little. I didn't know the alphabet. I didn't know the Hebrew alphabet when I started rabbinical school. And I didn't really think that I would continue in rabbinical school. I thought it was kind of a weird experiment. But I got kind of, uh, it started to speak to me. And I started to have this sort of iterative process between uh, my like political and social values and learning about Judaism and sort of like how those two pieces of me like finding each other uh, within me. And so, so here I am all these years later, you know, been a rabbi for 20, over 25 years. That's that's quite some time. I, I'm, I'm curious because my wife and I talk a lot about this. Um, what does it mean for you to be Jewish? Because there's so many, uh, also from historical, especially German historical context, there's been so many misconceptions and also the the struggle of finding, you know, your your very own way of defining what it means to be Jewish. How would you describe? Um, the Jewish identity for yourself? So from, for me, it's about living, living Jewish values in a serious way. So, and that the values to me are, are like the guiding forces and meets votes, right? Uh, I don't know if your audience needs translations, but like, you know, commandments that we that we follow that are much more specific, that they are building blocks toward a just and compassionate society that that to me, I don't see um, I, they have ends in themselves and that we have moments of connecting to God. But that moment of connecting to God has to also have a greater purpose. It, it, It's not just our own little moment, right? It's it's our moment of connection of, of personal strengthening and growth of a reminder of our connection with God. And then we take that to build something from it. So I think like the asylum seeker, like uh, battles here are a good example of it, where some people were saying, hey, like, I feel bad for asylum seekers, but we can't absorb, you know, tens of thousands of people, you know, who are refugees. And those of us who said, We can't be a Jewish state. They said, like, we won't be a Jewish state anymore because we're a democracy. People get citizenship and then we won't be a Jewish state anymore. And I say we won't be a Jewish state if we send people to their deaths. That's not what a Jewish state does. Right. And that we have to take everything into consideration. But we're creative people. Let's think creatively about how to not send people to their deaths, to treat the stranger as a citizen among us, which is told to us 36 times in the Torah, as opposed to three times of not, you know, boiling a kid in its mother's milk. Right. <laughs> like, so we need to like that needs to matter to us. And we need to think creatively about how to do this in a way that um, that maintains integrity on all of these levels. It's it's um, really really interesting to to see like how um, I I was raised in a Christian family and um, I've been involved in my childhood and youth and like going to church all the time and 
Um, but I found uh, really a uh, disconnect between um, someone having faith and living their faith and being religious. Um, which for my definition, just to uh, make a better understanding for this, is just like living just by the law, but not understanding with your heart um, what your faith, the values of the faith, like not living by them, just following the rule book, putting a, a sheet over it, seeing if everything fits on, on that and checking the boxes, but not really um, yeah, taking what you learned to the heart and translating to your own doing. And I found it really interesting when you said um, that a lot about being Jewish is uh, what you learn in the Torah is uh, basically ethic values, right? Um, so some part of it. And um, you've been part uh, of an organization that um, is called Women of the Wall. Um, can you explain to the audience what this, uh, what the organization is about and what it is uh, trying to achieve? Uh, so um, Women of the Wall, first of all, like I am officially on the board still and I am a big fan of Women of the Wall, mm -hmm. but I'm not very involved anymore because of my work that it's there are just too many time conflicts. Uh, but um, I'm a big fan. Uh, and basically looking for Israel to stop discriminating against Jews and and disallowing Jews from praying freely. You know, we're the only westernized country that has laws against Jews praying freely in public spaces of worship, right? Um, and the Jews in question happen to be female. <laughs> so what we want is a democracy. We want a Jewish democracy. We want a place where, you know, the Shivim Pani and the Torah, like there's 70 faces of Torah can all can flourish where we don't have the idolatrous approach of the Rabbanuts of saying our little tiny narrow way of understanding God and Brit and Jewish uh, uh, life and purpose is the is the entire in the entirety of the whole because that's the definition of idolatry is taking a tiny sliver of something and 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 defining it as the whole. So we oppose uh, idolatry and Judaism, and we oppose undemocratic rule in a democratic I, I state. I didn't even I wasn't even aware um, of that. It's like illegal for uh, women to pray in public. I know it was, um, you know. It, there was a separation of the two different zones at the uh, hotel at the Western Wall. Um, but I didn't really, um, I wasn't really aware that this was, is this like an actual law or is this just like a social dynamic? So, well, it's a combination. So the the uh, Western Wall Plaza, like holy places in Israel, are run by the Rabbanut, by the ultra-Orthodox rabbinical system. And they have they have essentially legal authority, like their law is civil law. So they run the Western Wall. So, so they're not allowed to read from the Torah at the Western Wall. And, uh, and that we, our Torahs can be taken away from us as we're going in by the by the police of the hotel, because it is an area under the legal supervision of of the rabbinate, of the ultra orthodox official rabbinate. You know, uh, I do weddings in Israel, uh, but if I do it in in theory, I could go to jail for two years. Well, okay. <laughs> for doing it. I mean, any non-ultra-Orthodox rabbi who's not, any rabbi who's not acknowledged or accepted by the rabbinate and does a wedding, that's, first of all, it's not like legally acknowledged. And second of all, you go to jail just for officiating at it. Wow. I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know that. I know it's not the common thing that there's uh, female rabbis. You know, it's usually uh, a thing for the bearded population. <laughs> But um, so, so when you do weddings, is it like something you have to do, quote unquote, in secrecy? Or how does the reality of that look like? The reality of it is so far, there's one 
arrest of one reform rabbi a few years ago in Haifa for maybe for officiating at a ra- at a wedding, but it was very quickly like not processed and not like he he was let go, but he was arrested like in the middle of the night from his house. Okay. It's insane, but that was the one thing I don't anticipate that it's going to be acted on in any way. But why do we have this? Yeah. You know, and why can't people have a, a non-Orthodox rabbi do their wedding and have the uh, interior ministry record their marriage? Especially coming from the United States, like f- from from what I understand, basically anyone could officiate a wedding. You just need to get uh, a certification of some sort. And then I could officiate my friend's wedding if I'm not. So that that's a big, uh, big contrast to w- what is the reality in uh, Israel. I think we've got to be careful in the United States. I mean, thank God this last election, you know, but listen, under the Trump and the courts that he was creating and uh, and that Senate, you know, horrible laws like uh, adoption agencies can discriminate against people who are not, for example, like evangelical Christians. It is legal now to discriminate. I, I don't know. It's just so interesting that sometimes there's so much progress made and suddenly um, due to social dynamics, but also due to the influence of uh, politics, it feels like there are uh, 10, 10 steps back again. Like just for example, to take the uh, whole COVID situation into consideration, the amount of people that suddenly um, come out of their holes. Uh, um, I mo- mostly speak about Germany in this case. And, you know, start with these classic conspiracy theorists and anti-Semitic uh, things. Oh yeah, the, the Rothschild people created COVID and they have the patent for the vaccine and whatever it, it, it usually doesn't take much for extremely reverse mindsets to become a more popular opinion and in the example that you made even law in, in that case which um, you know makes me makes me very um, thankful that there's always like people pushing back against this um, trend even if it's maybe not representative not representing everyone's opinion um, but what do you think you mentioned adoption um, which is the topic that I would love uh, to spend a lot of time talking with you about right now you, what is like the main problem with adoption in the United States and why does it matter to everyone? Uh, okay, so right now in the US there are over 400,000 children in foster care. That means that they uh, do not have a permanent family. So maybe that they're in foster families, maybe they're in group homes, maybe they're betwixt and between, maybe they're sleeping in offices of social workers uh, and And a and youth who uh, who age out of foster care are the the, the demographic of the uh, who are the biggest feeders home homelessness sex trafficking prison poverty so those issues many people are addressing these issues it's just really important at the same time we need to sort of go like upriver it's called right and see what that who's being fun who's coming down river into these into these horrible situations and those are largely kids in foster care i mean if you work in homelessness with like a, a young population or even any population and you say do you spend any of your youth in foster care you're almost always going to hear yes you're working prison populations, you're working in trafficking populations, like people without permanent loving families don't have a lot of safety and, and, and um, a lot of options, a safety net for themselves to move forward on, on like every single level. And so it's really, really important that kids are in families. Um, on one level, what you really want to do, you want to um, help biological families succeed as best as possible. That's the most important thing. You really want kids to stay in their original families um, 
and for those families to be good, healthy families. It's not possible for a youth to be in with their with their biological families. Um, then we really need as a society to take responsibility for those kids and not let them be from household to household to household wondering, you know, if this is going to be a loving or an abusive three months, right? Like we need to um, help people to rise up to become foster families. And so the way that we at my organization, Second Nurture, what we do is we are creating a, uh, we're creating a, um, a, a program, like a, a way of doing this that that's replicable, where we partner with communities. Right now, it's mostly synagogues in L.A. County, although we have one citywide choir in that's for everybody in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And what they're what, for example, the synagogues in L.A. County is that the leadership is promoting foster care among their member families. People are moving forward and exploring it. And we have people who have already have kids home. We have people who have completed adoptions. We have people who are in process, like right now, doing their home studies and the different things that they need to do to get their uh their approval, their licensing, basically. It's called um, resource family approval in L.A. County. And we have people who are just like hmm, thinking about it. And then we have a whole community of people who are there to support the families. So we've had like the community supporting the families in lots of ways of, you know, uh, doing certain language therapies with kids, uh, providing one family with a office space, a free office space because their home office became their new child's bedroom. Like it could be a whole variety of ways that, that people are coming forward and supporting. And so that's really a beautiful thing. Plus we're reflecting adoption structure care in the communities themselves. So that when a kid who is being fostered or adopted is walking through the hallway and they'll see a sign that says, you know, at Purim that says, you know, Moses and Ruth redeemed the Jewish people. What else do these three heroes have in common? And the answer is they were all adopted, right? So like you just sort of have this natural weaving of foster care and adoption so that the kids who are there who largely aren't Jewish, they don't have to be, but see themselves reflected in what matters to the people who are around them. So that's that's what we're doing. And, and by doing that, we're encouraging more people to take the leap and to take the that emotional, that risk in their lives to open up their homes because they know that their community has their back. So first of all, people who foster and adopt are cohorts and they meet every month and they're in touch with each other. And beyond the cohort, the family, uh, the communities are supporting. Plus we make connections with persons to support them along the way. And it's cool. Like we've seen people who are just, who are like volunteering, help the families, then be decide to go in the process themselves because they're like, oh, I could do this, you know, and then become foster parents. So it's a model that we're creating, um, that we're actualizing, that we're doing, that um, we hope can be this really solid model replicated nationwide to really help people rise up and foster. There shouldn't be anybody outside, any kid outside, permanently, really long-term loving family who will be by their side forever. So basically, um, just to to uh, make sure I understood that correctly, um, you not only support um, parents or people that want to adopt children uh, during the process of adoption, but also uh, one of the targets is also to support them along the way so it's easier. So basically, adoption becomes more um, I don't want to say attractive, maybe more accessible uh, for families to do. Who should consider uh, adopting a child? So there's different levels, right? So there's there's foster care, and there's foster care that's going to be super, that's going to be pretty short term. There's long term foster care, like maybe the path for that child is uncertain going forward. We don't know if there'll be reunification with biological family or not. Um, and there's fostering to adopt. So all those exist at once, and different paths could be right for different people. So we have one synagogue that's focused almost exclusively on sh short emergency care, which is really important. So for example, one of our um, social service partners, they turn away about 15 requests a day for, sh for emergency care for kids who are sleeping on some social worker's couch in the office, right? 
So the importance of having really good emergency care is that siblings are more likely to be kept together. So you're not like just frantically trying to find someone who'll take anybody, you know, and dividing up or whatever. And and a much better long-term approach and gen- uh, solution in general is more likely because if the kids or kids are in a safe place for a while, maybe a few months, the social workers can take a breath, find the best alternative for that child or that sibling group long-term because you're not rushing and trying to just kind of save the moment with the kid, you know. So there's that. Um, so it depends. So people, it depends on their interest and capacity. As it is right now, for the most part, I think people understandably, they think about um, adoption as a way for adults to become parents, right? If the biological route isn't available, right? And that's fine. But I want to flip the paradigm as well so that adoption is seen as a way for kids to get families, Right. Um, And so when we look at it as a way for adults to become parents, often what people are thinking is like healthy infant adoption, domestic. Right. I'm not talking about the healthy infants like they should get wonderful families, you know, and it should be good. But there's a waiting list for those babies. Right. People are, are like, you know in competition for those babies. Um, Kids in foster care are just sitting there untouched, like just waiting for family. So I I think anybody, so, so so when you ask who should do this, I think anybody who has the capacity, I think it's really worthwhile considering, can I stretch in this way? You know, can I can I step and do this? How can I take a process that's going to move me forward and to begin to, you know, uh, take the steps so you can get licensed. So you don't have to then become a foster parent, but go through the process, take the steps, feel it. You know, it's not the kind of thing that's so easy to kind of decide in theory. So although many people do. Right. But to say, like, OK, this is a valuable thing in society. It's a neat. This is a way that I need to step up in society, that people need to step up in society. And so I'm at least take the steps and experience it and see what it means and move forward and then maybe foster or maybe not, but at least engage it. You have adopted uh, children yourself. I've watched the interview mm-hmm. where I think it's from a year ago um, where you said you produce girls and you uh, adopt the boys. <laughs> Important. Important. <laughs> um, what, what is the most uh, rewarding or what was the most rewarding thing for you personally to adopt kids into your family and have them become part of your very own family only one thing that I get to be their mom that's um, <laughs> I think I, I when you were when you were uh, explaining the last point I was trying to to uh, figure out a way to ask what is in for the parents with uh, with adoption which sounds super like more like a business deal than anything else I was trying to find okay. a, a don't qu- worry about it with me I there's nothing that can offend me I don't even use that word in actual context so uh, what did you ask say however you want <laughs> what you just said with with that you get to be uh, these kids' mom is, I think, something that uh, is, is really beautiful. And I, th- I, my wife and I even talked um, at some point about um, if, if uh, we would consider adopting a child at some point. And thinking back to the moment when Brittany, Brittany asked me this, I like, I like got really scared of, of that thought, like, um, taking in a human being that is not quote unquote your own blood because you don't know what it's turning out to be in an everyday situation what can you uh, tell to people that have these types of um, concerns or fears about in general they agree with the concept and they have the resources to do that but there's always like this little element of fear um swimming with the thought about uh, adoption is first of all i'd ask anyone who's got biological kids do you really get them (laughs) 
do they feel like, oh, yeah, they're just like me. Like, yeah. they're so not, like, at least in my experience. Like, they're just like, who is this alien creature? You know, like, really? I don't, first of all. Second of all, I don't think, I think the question is, is this something that someone's got to step in and do? And if it is, why not me? And and it happens to also be that like you get to increase in your life. Like it like there are hardships with any parenting. It's true. And there are unique ones with adoption, especially dependent on the age. But you know, do kids deserve families? If the answer is yes, then someone's gotta be those families. What is the main challenge in the United States um, for couples uh, that want to become parents or individuals that want, want to become a parent uh, and adopt a child? Is it an easy process or what's your experience with, with from making that decision? Yes, I want to uh, be a parent to a child that doesn't have a family. Super naive question. Can you just go to like a orphanage, walk in and say, I want to adopt a child. And then two hours later, you walk no. out with your new child. No, you you need to you need to get licensed. And then it depends where you are. Right. And also, um, you know, things change. So you have like a really good system in one place and not such a good system in another. And then one could get better and one can get worse. Like it's just like anything. And a big frustration that I hear is people saying, I've been trying, I've been licensed for five years and no social worker is Like give bringing me a kid like like there's that like the system is so overburdened so I would say that 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 is the micro piece of it that frustration of families who have been licensed to foster and are just not getting kids when there are so many kids waiting like that mismatch and there are people working on that specifically which is good but in the big picture that the problem is that we don't prioritize it as a nation. We don't fund it. We don't have enough social workers. We don't have enough, like, we just don't have enough, like, support for that. So never mind starting with the immediate biological family and having, like, support for a family that might be at risk. But outward to, like, just why should one social worker have, like, 50 cases or kids? Like, it's insane. And organizations like the Dave Thomas Foundation in Columbus are doing incredible work around that to help to streamline, just to support it, to give social workers bandwidth to be able to think about an individual kid. So depending on where you are is depending on the kind of frustrations that people are going to have. But the big question is, why are we not doing this? Why is... Or is our system not prioritizing it? Do you think it's just uh, bureaucracy and lack of basically human resources um, uh, that it's make, makes it difficult to address this issue? Or is there um, just a general lack of understanding in let's, let, legislation um, why this is such an important issue? Uh, it's because many of the powers that be do not give a fuck. They do not give a fuck. And you know who it is? It's Republicans who say that they are pro-life, pro-life, pro-life. Oh, really? You're pro-life? What you are is anti-woman. <laughs> pro-life means that the 440,000 kids in foster care in the U.S. would be a priority over tax cuts for the ultra-rich. Tax cuts, ultra-rich versus children who are deeply suffering and are going to end up in really bad outcomes. And the really rich are about here. And the kids are like not on the, on the radar. So you hear Democrats fighting for this and you hear Republicans going, we can't afford it, which is bullshit. So that's the problem. It's specifically the people who are claiming to be all pro-life and God who don't give a fuck about anybody who doesn't have the power in society. Oh, is swearing a lot on your podcast? Oh, it's wonderful. We are, uh, it's a European podcast. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it adds to the entertainment value for myself. Okay, so feel free to drop as many F-bombs okay. as you like. Um, yeah, I, I think it's the same with healthcare, right? Um, uh, to like, just, 
uh, and I think that goes beyond uh, Republican versus Democrats. Um, we, we have here um, a same difficult situation. My sister is a social worker and she educates and trains um, foster parents to be oh. uh, prepared for the job. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And um, she... She, I, I wrote her like a little uh, telegram message just before uh, we started our conversation. It's like, uh, can you give me a perspective on this in two seconds, how it is in Germany? And basically what she said, it's nearly impossible um, to adopt a child in Germany. Like it's possible, but the bureaucracy and the rules and the regulations are just... Um, I'm not quali qualified to say if they're over the top or uh, unnecessary difficult because I um, I have a background in sales tech <laughs> and media. I'm not uh, really a lawmaker or have any understanding of any of this, but um, maybe the, the burdens are too high and I, I think funding is not only in the US, but also in a country like Germany, a major issue. But what people that decide over these types of budgets to be spent forget what it costs if that doesn't right. get uh, addressed. Right. This is the same with healthcare or with um, homelessness, right? When you don't put money into this and working concepts, this is when it's going to really bite you in the ass after all. That's right. But yeah, I, th I think it's it's just such a uh, fascinating um, issue, adoption and foster care. I One of my dearest childhood friends, um, his family has ha uh, fostered multiple children through the decades. And um, one thing that personally um, made me uh, feel so intimidated to the issue of adoption is to see what sometimes um, fostering a child let and they got them around like 10 years seven years old mm -hmm. so you know they already spent a long time in the system and uh, had some time with the original parents and uh, so some of these were like really abusive to the child the Sometimes the, the price uh, marriage or relationship has to pay for taking in a child um, because these parents that are doing this loving act of fostering a, uh, another mm -hmm. child, um, they do not get enough support is really scary for me to look at. Um, how, how is it... Um, there's a reason why you made this organization, right? And there's a reason why you guys uh, come up with a concept like, okay, mm -hmm. if you sacrifice your home office, uh, we try to find your office uh, so you could do your job. But what, what else is there that people can do to support families that are fostering children? Is there, do you think it's like an insensitive thing to approach uh, these families and say, hey, uh, if, you know, if you need support or if you want to talk about the, the challenges you have, you can come to me. Like how, right. how do you address a sensitive uh, issue that, you know, you don't want to feel like you don't want to make the feel that people you approach feel like you're belittling right. them or you're uh, right. have prejudice right. against them. Well, one thing you could do with an individual family, first of all, is ask, say, like, I'm noticing, you know, I know that you're fostering and I know that there are challenges with that. And if there's any way I can be helpful, I'm here. But if you'd rather I'm not, you know, asking about this, I'll stop. You know, you can ask people. Um, but I think also um, to remember, I know like one of our foster families was saying that um, they had two foster children before they adopted their son. And the first child uh, was very, very traumatic for them when she um, was placed with extended bio family because it wasn't actually a safe situation. And so it was really painful for them to um, let her see her go to that. Um, 
And then when their second foster child came home, nobody even said a word to them, the meals or anything, because everyone is so traumatized and felt like they were traumatized and didn't know if they should make a big deal of this one in case the same thing happens. And you know what I mean? Like, and they ended up feeling really kind of abandoned by everybody. Like, where is everybody? We have a new baby. You know, whenever someone has a new baby, I'm the first to like make a meal. Like, where is everybody? So I think we need to like have the, the courage to ask, first of all. Second of all, I I obviously would like to see places in which it is there is just support created and there like like the second nurture model so that it's not about it's not about what do they need how do they need but here's what people need and here's how we can respond and have a system for that so that not only are the people being supported but people who are doing the supporting or, or learning about it then step forward to foster and adopt as well. So I think it's best to have like a system in place, but if you just know people, just ask you, I mean, I just met you, but you've got such a, like a loveliness about you. Like, I am sure that if you just ask somebody that it'll be taken well, you know, with, with appreciation, even if they say, you know what, and we need to kind of just hunker down on our own right now, but thank you. Then you honor that. You, you mentioned, um, something that's, uh, I would like to to know more about the perspective of the child in the whole process, because um, when I asked my sister about this uh, this issue, she said a lot of kids fear that they are gonna be rejected again if the whole fostering slash adoption process doesn't work out. But um, even bigger than that, how is it? for these kids to be in the system how um, does their reality look like when we hear about orphans most people know this word from batman right, right. so but not everyone's got <laughs> uh, alfred Bruce, yeah <laughs> not everyone is uh, happens to be a multi-billionaire right. with uh, really cool cars so um Can you give me a little uh, perspective on the kids, the children's reality when they are in the in the system? Uh, so, you mean, there's as many realities as there are kids. Uh, that said, um, instability is never good for anybody, let alone a child. Uh, um, there are a lot of often conflicting feelings, right? So one thing that we'll talk about uh, in our groups is how we talk about birth families and birth parents, right? Because what's a kid feeling? Kids sometimes are feeling terrible guilt around their birth families, even though obviously nothing's their fault, they're children, right? Uh, so there are all, there's this whole sort of laundry list of, of things to kind of be cautious of and um, not to assume, but to be aware of so that, so that whatever it is for that particular child, whatever their experience is, um, we have uh, a sensitivity to the possibility that we can then respond to. So there have been deaths of birth parents, right, that we've had to like help, that we've helped families navigate their way through in terms of how they talk to their kids and help support their kids and what professional support they need and their kids need. Um, so whatever sort of comes up and whatever is, um, uh, that we, that we just sort of can identify in the child. And sometimes it's easier to identify these things. And sometimes it's really hard to identify these. Sometimes we think we see them, but they're not there. Like it's, it's complicated, right? It's, it, um, and it's a little bit with what you're asking about in mind, kids, 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 kids unique or categories of, of trauma and categories of struggle that we're now exploring in Columbus, Ohio, expanding there and creating communities that have um, that taken kids of specific populations. So, for example, one of our early partners is an organization that does um, that's uh, that deals with addiction. So they have one unit that's adolescent addiction. And about half of those kids who come through over like, you know, a long period of time, about average of about 50% of them are from the foster system. So what happens when they finish this addiction program and they need to go back to foster care? Well, wouldn't it be good if we had a community of people where the parents are trained in addiction, where the supports around addiction, specifically from this 
one place are made available to the families and where the whole community is educated enough that they have a, a sense and they can be supportive in specific ways. So looking at that for, for education, looking at that for LGBTQ youth who have had very often very, very um, specific kinds of traumas and and their time in foster care or how to foster care. Um, so it could be also of uh, sibling groups who had been separated from each other and now can be back together. Like there are lots of ways and all of those things are going to have overlap. Like it's always, it's never going to be just addiction, but not like neglect and abuse, right? You're going to have all of these things, but if we can have something that they see that in the other kids around them and that the other families around them have something like that in common that I think um, it will give strength. What can you do uh, for kids to feel welcomed in a new family? Um, like what helps them to build trust and um, establish a level of communication to these new family members, their adopted children? Um, what is like a general um, approach to Uh, make trust with with an individual that you is at first a total stranger, right? It's not like it's a, in many cases a year long friendship, and then you say, "All right, yeah, let's uh, let's do the adoption." How you sometimes see it in Hollywood movies? <laughs> What's like? What are the steps that uh, parents uh, have to take to develop a healthy relationship with an adopted child? If they first of all, we're talking about the long haul here. There's yeah. no magic. We're just talking about just say like bringing in the banks of the river in terms of the relationship, like guiding it. You know, it's not going to you're not going to like get to like build the two walls and we stay between those. It doesn't happen that way. You have to gently guide the child and the relationship in certain towards something. So the most important thing is to gain trust is be trustworthy. Right. <laughs> be trustworthy and that will become apparent over time um, also we need you know t uh, there are certain kind of things you can do like life books right life books are important in, in foster care and adoption where you help the be able to tell their own story because when you can tell your own story that's when you can begin to master your own life you need to be able to see you know it might be with little kids just drawing pictures of where they used to live and you know, what they used to do and just things like that with older kids, you can start have, it could be more sophisticated, but, you know, help to kind of name the story, name their story. Um, and from there you can sort of start to like envision more future. Um, and clearly to have the kinds of support you need, right? That you need the professional support for, the family for the child so that they can start to name what drives them. You know, we all have things that drive us. If we, if we can name them, yeah. oh, all of a sudden we can see them. Do you think um, uh, families that already have kids are more qualified to adopt children that, uh, let's say, young couples that do not have yet uh, had their biological children or doesn't it really matter at all? I think anybody can, is going to have struggles and they're going to be fine. I mean, I think we do look at, uh, you know, uh, slightly older parents with maybe teenager or older kids for older, for adopting older kids. Right. So if there's a 14 year old who needs to be placed, having a family where all the kids in the household are older than that can be good because it depending on that child. Right. So, you know, uh, it, for a couple of reasons, one is in the case of certain kids, but not a majority, they might have some sort of aggressive tendencies in some way. And you don't want small kids there. Many older kids do not have that and will be, you know, sort become lovely older siblings, but you want to know the situation. Um, but I think anybody, it's when we have like people who are kind of both. We have like one woman adopting who's like in her forties, big time professional. She's never had kids or, or, been, or been, she's not partnered. So, but she's, uh, 
adopting a 15 year old. Right. So people just everyone's different, but I think they all have advantages and disadvantages of their own. I wouldn't discourage anybody. Yeah, I, I think it really um, what it comes down to is um, your, your own support system. And um, if if you haven't had children before, like we, we don't have kids. So, you know, I'm still at the point where I'm like, um, I would love to have kids. But in a way, I'm scared of the challenge of uh, maybe failing as a dad or something. Um, which um you know prop most likely will change the moment um there's a child coming mm -hmm. into uh, into this world um but yeah I, i think it's it's such a really non-discussed uh topic and it's it's it really is um crazy what like one good influence in your life can have an impact on your personal yes. development as a child as a teenager even yeah. as a grown-up you know sometimes you need to have someone to look up to and say or live the values that you want to adopt for yourself and be a living example for the the good and the great things um and i i think there Our culture is like Western culture um, is way too obsessed with um, let it be politics or, you know, celebrities, um, which, you know, doesn't need to be a bad thing when we look, look up celebrity is just a person that is uh, recognized. Um, but um what do you think is one of the biggest um cultural misconceptions about about adoption like what is one of the most mis misunderstood uh narratives and those kids are kids and as soon as people meet kids in foster care it it changes everything And it doesn't mean that there's not trouble, but I can tell you from having bio kids, they can be trouble too, like you know, serious trouble too. So I think it's a real misconception. And also we have to remember that all of this is through no fault of their own. It's not like they were bad kids, so they were thrown out. These are kids who uh, came into the world into really hard situations, tossed around because of it and got bruised and battered because of it. But their potential, you know, their potential is still there. And I mean, we, we all like you and I had the privilege to be born into um, a first world country, into um, a family uh, wealthy enough to feed us and to raise us. And that's not a given. And um, there's so many uh world events or everyday things that happen to these kids as you say it's none of their fault and um i think people really need to to um spend some time look at the issue i remember when um my my production company uh, freelance society covered the events of the refugee crisis in uh, 2015 uh, in europe in serbia hungary croatia and so on um what the absolute uh, I cannot say it any other way than misery the suffering and the the pain that these people went through or in 2015 as well we went to Mosul Iraq uh, to the front lines uh, of of ISIS and we were like wow. may, maybe 100 120 meters away from ISIS wow. um, and this town or community just got taken over a few days before and they didn't really quote unquote clean up the mess uh of of the fighting and um every every like five to ten minutes a new pickup truck came in with uh families from mosul that uh escaped um the the situation there and the effect this had on me to see like first of death and destruction in a in a scale that 
I never, never was able to understand that something like this can be reality to people. And in, in Germany, you get quite well educated about issues like the Holocaust. And, but it never really clicked in my head how this violence and this hate yeah. uh, can become people's reality. And it's not just like a fairy tale from uh, 80 to 100 years ago. You know, it's, it, it is reality and it affects people and yeah. people get hurt. But exposing myself to that <laughs> made me much, much softer Uh, and have developed much, much more empathy towards not only like refugees in general and also like children. I saw children that had nothing but a T-shirt and we had like minus uh, four Celsius uh, at the border crossing from Serbia into Hungary, into Rushki, uh, was the name of the town. Um, and uh, a lot of them feared accepting the help in the uh, refugee camp on the other side of the border and went through so much um, suffering that um, seeing that because in Germany are super sheltered from everything you know the only big problem we have mm -hmm. at the moment that we can't go out to restaurant and, and bars at the moment which is <laughs> uh, the misery you know you don't even understand <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but even before 2019-2020 um, I think what, what's lacking really is the exposure to the reality of people outside of our own filter bubble of our own social uh, social bubble Same. and since since that uh, besides the fact that from my iraq trip i really got traumatized because i saw extremely mm, really graphic stuff yeah and uh, you but also it, in a way it made me a little bit more numb in some areas of my heart but also softer in many many other areas mm -hmm. and um, I believe that once you learn to look at um, what could become of these people once they get good care and once they get the attention and the support that they need um, I mean, the best example, the best current example is uh, really uh, Pfizer-BioNTech's uh, vaccine, which have been immigrant children um, in Germany. Um, I think they're like first or second generation immigrants that Uh, they got help from a neighbor explaining them how to use like Microsoft Excel uh, because they struggled in school with uh, topics like mm -hmm. this. Now they're saving literally hundreds of thousands, if not even millions of lives through the work that they did because they had help. And I wish that mm. people would look more at these things like That's amazing. Uh, Steve Jobs yeah. was an orphan, right? That's right. And you do He not need to like the guy, but you cannot deny he had an impact, impact on the world. Yeah on the world and a lot of people who have had impact or adopted it's very interesting yeah what what are some other notable uh people that got adopted do you have some uh, oh gosh <laughs> i'm not gonna remember even though like i look up these lists sometimes for like pr things um but certainly like biblically you have moses and ruth and esther yeah. who are all adopted uh there are lots of, oh i'm not gonna think of it now oh bill clinton was Uh, adopted by his stepmother. Okay. No, that's worth. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really, really a matter of exposure and making this like more a normal thing, right? To at least mm -hmm. talk about uh, talk about this, and I'm I'm really uh, grateful for the work that you do and the effort uh, because I I cannot imagine this to be an easy job, an easy task because you need to work on so many levels not only on the children's level not only uh, on the parents level but also what impacts their work what impacts their uh, how they get supported and everything um, what could if, if people listen to this and they are um, you know saying they want to support um, this cause or what can You know, people do that don't know any foster parents to support. Like, what is the everyday Joe's uh, thing? Uh, what what can people do to support? Uh, not maybe not even only your organization, but uh, uh, 
foster and uh, um, orphans in, in general? This first, like, like just to educate yourselves, right? So if you look at like the Dave Foundation, for example, and just look at the work that they're doing and they have a lot of reports and information and it's very accessible, um, then uh that's a good place to look. And also like it depends on where people are, right? There's a lot of uh, a lot of research coming from England that looks really interesting and good to me. So what are the Department of Social Services, what are they studying or whatever they're called in, in Britain? What are they doing? I think it depends where you are. Look at foster care where you are and see the work that reputable organizations are doing and see what they're saying. What are the statistics? They often have foster adoptive parents you know, videos and speaking about what they what it's been like for them. Um, certainly check out to nurture.org, our, our, our website and see that the work that we're doing and meet our families. We're starting actually a five minute podcast between our board members and our, our cohort families just to, to talk with each other really briefly and get insights into their experiences. Um, I would say based on where you are, even if whatever state it is, in the U.S., you can look up national organizations like the Dave Thomas Foundation or something like Annie E. Casey Foundation. If you're interested in research, they have an immense amount of research on this topic. But also look locally, see what's happening. Look at uh, look at your local uh, Department of Social Services. Also look at something like the uh, the Heart Gallery, which is national, which is a presentation of of all the a majority of the kids who are in foster care and just meeting sort of meeting them uh through their pictures and their bios and stuff so there are lots of avenues and i think just follow what interests you most don't feel like there's some sort of big education thing what interests you is it interests you to see who the kids are does it interest you to find out what the statistics are follow your interests and the rest of it you'll find you'll get a path you'll your path will lead you to that and i think one of the most um important things is to know when you volunteer for something it doesn't have to be a full-time long-term commitment mm -hmm. sometimes you can do something for a limited amount of time um, sometimes it can be something you do over long terms but maybe just uh, once a year for uh, christmas or whatever holiday or whatever it is and it's extremely um, extremely rewarding um, i know this from my very own experience we hosted a bunch of Eritrean refugees um, in our, my family's home for Christmas and they since they left their home countries they haven't had a Christmas dinner in an um, organization from uh, Austin, Texas mm. there's no more sponsored the entire dinner so we could go to the supermarket fill multiple shopping carts and we had a bunch of uh, happy African brothers and sisters uh, celebrate Christmas and it was probably the most fun and exciting uh, mm -hmm. Christmas uh, dinners I, I, I've had um, and uh, you know that's the the one thing I did in that perspective and um, it, it sometimes doing, mm -hmm. doing something once is enough because you might inspire someone else to do something and um, that's what held me back uh, for a very long time to uh, volunteer for causes right. because I didn't want yeah. to be engaged in it all the time and just you know I have many things going on but sometimes just to do one small thing can be enough to really have an impact on people's lives so i would love to encourage uh, to everyone who's listening to this to just see you know is there a cause that you care about and is there something you want to do um and um, see if you want to do something and if not that's okay then just see maybe if you can talk to people that do something so you can become an educator um wow this was uh, really deep and um i i i'm not really the greatest to talk about things that i feel <laughs> and i'm german and we don't do that <laughs> stuff here <laughs> um but uh yeah susan thank you so so much uh for taking the time i could great to meet uh, you i could talk with you for the next 12 hours and i'm sure i wouldn't be bored there's so much more uh but uh, let's take it easy on the audience and leave a little bit room for a potential second episode at some point in the future oh, with you Simone, thank you so so much it was really lovely to meet you all the best in your new house 
thank you so much and uh, we stay in touch. I will link uh, your organization um, in the uh, podcast description so everyone who is listening to this can just click on the text that comes with the podcast and you're automatically on Susan's website. Uh, make sure to check it out and uh, consider subscribing and sharing to this uh, episode and we will hear you all dear audience in the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you. And send me all your website, whatever, all of your work, okay? Will do. Okay. Will do. Thank you so all much. Bye.